Oh, amen. Let's pray together as we confess our need for our Lord uh, in prayer. Father, we come before you today confessing our moment-by-moment need for your grace and for your mercy available to us only in Christ Jesus. So as we come under your word today, would you teach us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us, Lord God? But mostly, would you comfort us by your spirit and by your word? in the great love that is now ours in Christ Jesus. So work among us, work in us, and use us for your glorious purposes in this community in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning once more. Welcome to River City again. My name is Charlie Hogstead, one of the elders here, and honored to be a part of this family. Uh, I do see it as a family. My wife and I see this church as our our family. Uh, When you were growing up, how would, you, how would you describe your family? What kind of family were you a part of? Or maybe another way of thinking about it is, what was your family identity? What were you known for? Maybe, maybe you were the athletic family. Maybe uh, you were the smart family. There's a family in, in my town like, yeah, they're, they're just the smart people. They kind of do their thing. They talk above us. Then there's maybe the rich family, maybe there's the messed up family, maybe you were part of that Christian family that everybody knew in town. I grew up in a small town of about a thousand people, and there were times when I felt like our family uh, was, was privileged and put together in comparison with other families, but then there are other kids that I knew that I went to high school with, like in comparison with them, we're just, we are just a wreck. And so it was a really weird experience, and maybe you felt that as well. And as we get into this series entitled What We Believe as a Church, what we're doing is we're further defining what kind of family are we? What unites us together? What do we believe? What do we hold to? What are we going to be known for? And so this morning we're going to be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you need a copy of God's Word, raise your hand. We'll be on page 624 in the Bibles that are being handed out here. Joy and Luke have them. Raise your hand. Page 624. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read the first 11 verses, but really we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 4, and we're going to discuss the idea of gospel centrality. Gospel centrality. So the first letter to the Corinthians was written uh, by the Apostle Paul, and he came to Corinth on his second missionary journey. Uh, His goal was to plant a church there, and this is all written down in Acts chapter 18, so you can check that out if you want in more detail, but I'll give you a paraphrase. So he would go into the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship on the Sabbath, and what he would do is he would reason with the people there about who Jesus was and what he had done. But as it turned out, the people that he would reason with, they didn't like what he was talking about. It says that the Jews there actually opposed him, and they reviled him. And so instead of continuing on in that, he said, fine, if you guys aren't going to take this, if you're not going to receive it, I'm going to go tell the Gentiles. I'm going to go tell the non-Jews about who Jesus is and what he did. And so he literally, he walks out the door, he hangs a left, and he goes to this house of this other guy and starts sharing the gospel there. And what happens is people start to believe People are being baptized. And in the midst of this, God shows up to Paul in a dream and tells him a few things. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on sharing the gospel. I am with you. No one's going to harm you. And there are many in this city who are my people. And so can you imagine that kind of confidence going into this hostile environment with that good news? And he did. 
He continued uh, preaching the gospel for 18 months in Corinth, uh, but eventually the Jews had enough, and they dragged him before the Corinthian city council. And instead of hearing the case, they just said, this is a theological dispute, we're not getting involved. Um, but the Jews, being upset about that, they grabbed this Christian guy named Sosthenes, they drag him out, and they literally just beat him to a pulp. They beat him up right in front of the city council, and the Corinthian uh, magistrates did nothing about it. They just let it happen. And so this is the wild, wild west uh, in many ways, but especially as far as Christianity was concerned with this new church that was being planted and was growing and was maturing. And so Corinth, it was a city located on this tiny strip of water or land between two big bodies of water. And so there'd be a lot of trade going on. There are a lot of people going through town. Uh, it was initially a Greek city that was destroyed and then rebuilt years later by the Romans. And so not only do you have all this like con uh, commerce going on, a lot of people coming in and out, you had the influence of the two most important cultures of the time uh, there as well. And so it was a messed up place, to say the least. But remember what God had told Paul in that dream. He said, I have people there. Keep preaching the gospel. And these people will hear it, and they will believe it. And that's exactly what happened. So Paul, he, he moved on. He went to uh, plant churches in other parts of, of the uh, ancient East. And he wrote them this letter, first letter to the Corinthians. And what he was doing was addressing some questions that they had sent him that they were wondering about as they just started to see, like, how does this faith impact just very basic elements of our lives together as a church? But Paul, he also had some things that he wanted to address with them because there were some things going on in that church that were messed up. And so Paul definitely had a direct tone in this letter. There's some things about this church he wanted them to stop. There's some things about this church he wanted them to start because he, as the, the planter of that church, he cared deeply for them and he was concerned about their health as a body. And so after he addresses his concerns, after he answers a few of their questions, we get to chapter 15. So we're going to read the first 11 verses, then we're going to circle back uh, to the first couple and study them in more detail. So follow along with me if you would. It'll be on the screen as well. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Amen. Amen. One thing that I found amazing, especially as I studied this this week, just something that's common to all of us, every single human being on the face of the planet, it's this capacity that we have to forget things. Our ability to hear something, to understand it, to process it, but then to forget it. 
you all have something that you've probably at one point knew really, really well, but now you'd have to go back and read about it. Because of sin's destructive uh, and disintegrating effects upon us, we have this amazing ability to draw a blank or to, to have a thought or a memory just obliterated from our minds. And the Corinthian church, they, they struggled in many ways because they had that same capacity and they had forgotten the basics, uh, the 101 stuff of the gospel. And so Paul, he was reminding him, and we need that same reminder because we have that same forgetfulness problem that they faced. Because when we forget, when we forget what Jesus did for us, a number of things could happen to us as a church. We could become legalistic, meaning that we only focus on our outward behavior instead of our inward belief, only being concerned about the external rather than the internal. Or we could become focused on just meeting our perceived needs rather than focusing on our identity and who God has made us to be. And so this could be a church where you come just to consume a variety of religious goods and services rather than being a part of a family on a mission. And we could become a church that just isolates itself from the world, where people, when they come in, they don't feel welcome, uh, they don't feel cared for. It's hard to become part of our family. Or we could be a, a, a church that actually goes into the world, but we go in the name of social justice and we do not go in the name of Jesus Christ. So when we forget the gospel and when we forget who we are as a family, who God has made us to be, then these realities could very quickly follow. But the good news for us this morning is that Scripture points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ all over the place. And the more we study the Word of God, the more we actually see the Word of God, the more we become like Jesus, who is the Word of God. We'll remember who we are, and we're going to be amazed by the gospel. And so out of that, we're going to pursue holiness out of a worshipful heart. We're going to rest in our identity. We're going to serve one another, and we're going to share the gospel with our community. And so as we study what we believe as a church, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to our relationship with God, our view of ourselves, our identity as a church, and the mission we're a part of to our community. And so the first exhortation that Paul has for us from this passage is a church family remembers who they are. A church family remembers who they are. And we'll see that in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul's reminding this, this church of the good news that he had proclaimed to them, that he had delivered to them, this good news that they had received, it says. And so if we take that word received and we blow it up and amplify it and see what's there, what he's getting at is that the Corinthian church, when they heard the gospel, they accepted it, they agreed with it, <clears throat> they approved of it, they believed it in every sense of the word. So they, they heard this news, this good news, and they received it. So he's pointing them back to that, that first time they heard the greatest message that this world has ever heard, how they embraced it and they took this news as their own. They applied this news to themselves. And so imagine you're watching the news at home one night and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a story comes on that completely changes your life. That's what these guys are going through. I was sitting in my dorm room on September 11th, 2001. And you couldn't help but sense that life is now going to be different in many, many ways for many, many people. But you don't have a sense of like what is actually going to be different. You just know that things have changed. That's what the Corinthians were. 
This news had become their story. They had embraced it. And now they're wrestling with, how do we live? How do we live in light of this? And that's what Paul was helping them uh, to see. He's saying, remember this news that I shared with you. You weren't expecting it, but you needed to hear it, and you embraced it. He reminds them, going on in the passage, not only of what they heard in the past, but what they're currently receiving from the gospel, the present power to help them stand in the state of forgiveness and grace in which they'd found themselves. So they were remembering that the gospel is what keeps them, it's what helps them endure, it's what keeps them from all the distractions that the city of Corinth offered them. And then getting into verse 2, Paul reminds them of the gospel by which they are being saved. It's remembering that the gospel is going to continue to change you. You will remain in that state of grace and forgiveness, and you'll actually live into it more and more and more, Corinthian church. And so in short, the gospel is a means by which we're saved. It's the strength in which we stand on a day-to-day basis. And it's the means by which God continues to change us and to transform us as people and as a church. And so therefore, Corinthian church and therefore River City Church, the gospel cannot move to the fringes of who we are. It cannot move to the outskirts of our lives together as a family because a church family doesn't forget who they are. We don't lose our identity, but we remember who we are and we remember who God has made us to be. And so Paul says, hold fast, Corinthians. Hold fast to the word that's preached to us over and over in Scripture. We don't move away from it, but he says, hold fast to the word I preached to you. We don't move from it. We hold fast to it. We remember it. We stand in it. We see its power to continue shaping us and forming us from one degree of glory to another. We embrace it in every sense of the word. That's what Paul's getting at. Because if we forget the gospel, if we push it to the outskirts, how does that inform how we see God? How does that inform how we see ourselves? How does that inform what what we're even doing here on a Sunday morning? What does that mean about how we leave this place and go into this community? Well, we are a church family that centers on the gospel, but we could very easily turn to do a church family that's more focused on behavior modification than faith. Is that something that you're prone to? Are, are you prone to believing that God is only pleased with you dependent upon your level of obedience? Or are we going to be a church family that just seeks to, to meet our earthly needs? Are you here just to become a better version of yourself? To get your needs met? I think this is something the evangelical church in America uh, does very easily, where churches just become a purveyor of religious goods and services. So you come here, you get your marriage fixed, you get your finances in order, you become a better parent. I mean, those are all well and good. That is incredibly important. But if we put that first, if we put that at the center of our identity as a church, and that's what we focus on, then what we're going to do is we're going to miss out on the power of the gospel behind being a better spouse, behind being a better parent, the gospel and its empowerment to actually steward our finances for the glory of God. And so what is it motivating us? What's empowering us 
as a church. That's why these are big thoughts. That's why Paul's bringing them back to the 101s. What kind of family are we? What is our identity? What unites us as a church? And how do you contribute to that identity? Or more simply, I can just ask, like, why are you here? So the scary part from a pastoral perspective of doing a series like this, as we define who we are as a family and make some stands on what we believe and why, some are going to see that maybe, maybe I'm not part of this family. I don't like that. I like being liked. We want to serve people. We want to point people to Jesus. But sometimes that's what happens. Or on the flip side of that, some of you might be saying, I might need to take a deeper step in the community. I might need to take that next step in saying, I need you to remind me of the gospel regularly because I'm forgetful. And I'll be like, I am too. But no matter where you're at on that particular spectrum, you need to know that a church family doesn't forget the gospel. And if we do, if we ever move away from this, then actually I would, I would encourage you to run. I would encourage you to go find another church. If we move the gospel to the outskirts and the fringes, then you should go somewhere else. But if we keep the gospel central, what that means is God is actively working among us. We can know that for a fact. Because I am prone to forget the gospel. I'm prone to move it to the fringes. And when we're talking about Jesus and what he's done, we can know 100% for sure that the Holy Spirit is active here. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. When you are openly talking about the gospel, you can know that the Spirit's active. You can know that the Spirit's at work. And so when the gospel is central, we can know for sure that God is saving us, that he is keeping us firm. We're standing firm. He is changing us. And so we hold fast to that. We ask God to help us hold fast to that because we're prone to forget. We hold fast to that good news in which we are saved, in which we stand, and in which we're being transformed. A family doesn't forget who we are, but we're prone to it. The second thing that we can observe from this text this morning is that a church family is amazed by the gospel. A church family is amazed by the gospel. And so, Imagine your favorite cable news station, whatever it is, I don't care. Imagine if they kept broadcasting the same exact story over and over and over again. Didn't matter if it was the morning broadcast, the news at 5, the news at 10, on their website, on their Twitter feed, on their Instagram, whatever. Would you watch that channel? Would you tune in knowing exactly what you'd be hearing all the time? Probably not, because we like variety. We like new stuff. We like breaking news. But look at verses 3 and 4. Paul delivered to the Corinthian church what he had also received himself. So Paul wasn't making this stuff up. He was just passing it on. He was giving the Corinthians what he had been given himself. And so, and what he gives them, we see here, he considers to be of first importance it is primary, or it, it's literally more important than anything else he could share with them. He wanted to be that cable news channel that shared just that one story over and over and over again. Paul was determined to be a one-trick pony. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Paul preached Christ and him crucified to this messed up group of people in a messed up city, and he saw what happened as they believed. A few verses later in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, 
he tells them that he decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. So Paul, he was a broken record. And he delivered to the Corinthians the only real thing he had to give them. And so here in verses 3 and 4, he goes into more detail about this gospel, what he had actually received and what he had put before them years before that they had accepted and they had agreed with and they had approved of and they had embraced as their own story. So the good news here is we see verses 3 and 4. What Paul considered to be of first importance, it consists of Christ dying for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so on the cross... Jesus died. He took upon himself all of the guilt, all the penalty of our sin. Even though he was perfectly sinless, he obeyed his Father in all things. But on that dark, dark day, Jesus actually died. And so what Paul is describing here is what we would, we would define as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. We hold to that. The truth that, that on the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sins as a substitute so that we could be made one with God. Jesus took the punishment for our sins as our substitute to make us one with God. 1 Peter 3.18 describes it well for us. For Christ <clears throat> also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He gave his life as a ransom for many, and he came to take away the sins of his people. Can I get an amen on that? That's some big news, isn't it? How could we forget that? How could I forget that? It's amazing. And Paul wants them to hold fast to that reality, the truth by which they are saved, the truth in which they stand, and the truth that continues to save them. And this is important. There are movements out there today. There are churches out there today that, that take penal substitutionary atonement and say, ah, not for us. It's not of first importance to us. Thank you very much. But what you're doing in that is you're denying the power of God and the means by which God pays for our sin and the wrath and penalty and punishment it deserves because our God is holy. You're taking away the means by which one finds true forgiveness. But River City, are we amazed that a perfectly sinless Savior, a perfectly obedient Christ would go to the cross for us? If this is not of first importance, then what is? Look at verse 4 where Paul reminds them that not only did Jesus die, but he was buried, a natural consequence of death, but that he didn't stay buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And so as Jesus takes the full cup of God's wrath for our sin upon himself, the resurrection shows that God's wrath was fully satisfied for the sins of his people. Death could not hold him. And in his resurrection, we see Jesus' victory over sin. We see his victory over death. And because he rose again, because death could not hold him, we have forgiveness 
We have redemption and we have resurrection. We have this new life with him. And so we can know that this life is not all there is. We're resurrected to new life now and we will be one day. And that will be amazing. And so this life is not all there is. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in ourselves. But in fact, our old selves died with him. And our new selves have been raised to new life. Again, is this amazing? Can I get some help here? That's amazing, right? But why do we forget that? Why do I forget that? A church family is amazed that the Messiah would die for us. And a church family is amazed that the Messiah would rise again for us. Paul is telling us that, that these things, that's what's of first importance. There's nothing more central for us as a church than that. And so we hold on to these things because it's a matter of eternal life and death. And when Christ's death and his, uh, his resurrection are central to what we believe as a church, you're going to be able to tell. Because we're going to be concerned about personal holiness. But our motivations for that will be uh, obedience to God with a sense of joy and thankfulness and gratitude, a desire to worship this God who would go to such lengths as to save us and to sustain us and to change us. And we, we are concerned about having our needs met, about having healthy relationships, about managing our finances, but we're going to see that this power to obey God in these areas, it actually comes from the fact that we're new creations in Christ. It's not something we conjure up ourselves. And we're going to serve one another. We're going to desire one another to hold fast to Christ and to him crucified. We're going to remind one another of his death and his resurrection and that by faith we are brand new. And we're not going to retreat into a bunker either, waiting for Jesus to come back. This isn't a cruise ship just waiting to get to eternity. But instead, we're going to see our role in the community as those who are in the midst of a cosmic battle. We are on an aircraft carrier, and we are launching you out with the good news of the gospel to drop some bombs. It changes our perspective on how we relate to our community. And so, it's okay, it's okay that as a church family, we're that, that news station where the breaking news for the day is always Christ and Him crucified. That's Okay. Because for us, it doesn't grow old. In fact, the more we study it, the more we tend to appreciate it. The more we tend to share it. The more we tend to live in light of it. And if we treat the gospel like breaking news, we're going to see that it is good and that we need it badly. And what I find amazing is that Christ and crucified is all over Scripture. It changes how we, we see God's word. We can start right in the beginning, right in Genesis 3. Sin entered the world. It brought death and decay and destruction to relationships, to our physical bodies, to our ability to think, our ability to feel, uh, <clears throat> our everything. Adam and Eve, they saw that they were naked and ashamed, so what did they do? They hid from God. They went over to the closest tree, grabbed a couple of fig leaves, and said, this should be good enough to cover us. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. We have been in a constant battle to try to cover ourselves, to hide sin's destructive power in our lives and to come across like we have it all put together. But the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 21. And here we see the first bloodshed in history where God himself made for Adam and Eve garments of skins and he clothed them. He clothed them. 
Those fig leaves you got, they're not doing it. Let me take care of this. And so in the shedding of blood, in the death of that animal, and in God clothing his people, we see a shadow of the gospel because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We have his perfect life. We are no longer naked. We are no longer ashamed in our sin, but instead we are cleansed and we are clothed. When Israel, when they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, by the, the blood of the Passover lamb, we see a shadow of the gospel. In all the sacrifices that's laid out in the book of Leviticus, I used to make fun of the book of Leviticus because it was hard to understand and so different from my experience of life. But now, we read Hebrews this fall, but now, or in the summer, but now Leviticus points to the, the one-time sacrifice for sin that Jesus accomplished. You don't have to keep doing this. He did it. That's amazing. Leviticus is great. Study it. Isaiah 53, it's filled with references to the death of the Messiah, how he was, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he, was, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. It's, it's everywhere, if you're looking for it. But not only is Christ's death all over Scripture, so is his resurrection. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So this points to Christ as the, the Holy One who would not be abandoned to the place of the dead, nor would he see corruption. Death could not hold him. Ezekiel 37, it just an amazing passage. Check it out. It describes as a valley full of dry bones, just laying there. But it also describes this God who causes breath to enter, this God who gives life, who, who causes flesh to come upon us, to cover us, so that we would know that our God is Lord. So the word of God, it points to the death and the resurrection of Jesus all over the place. And the more we see that, the more we're amazed by just these few examples, but there are many more. So is this amazing? Is it, of, is it of first importance, like Paul's saying here? Is it impacting how you view God, how you view yourself, how you view our church, how you view our community? Because when we see all this in Scripture, when we see how central this is to Scripture, and when we keep it as the center of our lives as individuals and as a church family, we're going to know that Jesus is working in us, that his Spirit is changing us, and that we are glorifying God the Father in our relationships. We'll know that we're forgiven. We will know that we are new creations and we will trust that our biggest problem has been taken care of. Unless you believed in vain. If we look at the end of verse two. So Paul knows that there were people in the Corinthian church who had, they had heard the gospel, <clears throat> but they hadn't received it. They didn't accept it. They didn't agree with it. They didn't approve of it. And I know that there, there are people all over the place, maybe even here this morning, who, who have not believed the gospel. Or maybe they have believed in vain, as Paul said. And I know that because I went to church for a couple years, a gospel-preaching church for a couple years before I actually believed it, before I accepted it, before I saw who I was and what I needed. And so I, I was asked this very simple question, which kind of teed it off for me. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? 
And before I received the gospel, I would have said yes, but I would have qualified it like I'm not perfect. I get that. I know that. But I think more or less I'm not as bad as that guy. You always have Hitler to fall back on as like the worst person you could ever compare yourself to. I would have called myself a Christian, but I, 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 I believe at that time, had I died and stood before a holy and righteous God, it would not have been a good situation for me. And so I had to receive that bad news first. I had to receive that news that I'm not as good as, as I thought I was. In fact, I'm much worse than I, than I could imagine. So what do, I, what do I do with that? The nice thing about being in that position is you've got nowhere else to go, Right? You've got nowhere else to go but to Christ and him crucified. And so if you would consider yourself to be a good person, I get to share the same bad news with you that hit me back in 2007. That you're not good. That apart from Christ, you're dead in sins and trespasses. That's Ephesians 2. I'm not making this up. And if you were to die in your sins, you would face sure and certain judgment from a holy and righteous God. I'm not making this up. I'm not that smart. But... While you have breath in your lungs, while you have blood flowing through your veins, Scripture says, repent and believe. It says, turn from your sin, embrace the gospel, take that as your story. Jesus' death is your death, his life is your life. Ask God for forgiveness. Trust Christ who died and who rose again. Believing that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Confess your sin. Ask him to to show you mercy and to forgive you. And then believe that Jesus took your penalty upon himself. And that he who rose again will raise you again as well. And when you do that, maybe this isn't so good news to you, but like you get to become part of our messed up family who's becoming less messed up. The gospel in which we're saved, in which we stand, in which we're being transformed, you get to be a part of that with us. And that's actually a really good place to be. So join the family of God by faith in Christ alone, by believing in his gospel, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, and then join us in the greatest mission this world has ever known, sharing the greatest message this world has ever known. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've made us your sons and daughters. Children of wrath, now children of light, with a new hope, with new hearts, with new purpose. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for saving us. And we ask that as we study your gospel today, as we consider again who Jesus is and what he's done, Father, that you would help us to stand in that. As we leave this place, When we're, when we're tempted, when we're drawn away, Lord God, help us to stand fast. Help us to come back to Jesus' death and resurrection as the only hope in which we stand today. And Father, use the same good news to change us and to transform us as a church and as individuals until Jesus comes back. We know we're not who we will be because of your faithfulness and because of your gospel. And so even use this time here today to comfort us and to change us how you see fit wherever we might be battling uh, a lot of sin, a lot of suffering, a lot of struggle, whatever it is, Lord God, would you give us hope and comfort today in Christ? As we come to your table, give us a, a great reminder of the price that was paid for our redemption, for our salvation, for this newness of life that we now have by faith, Lord God. So we give you thanks and praise 
Would you show off your faithfulness and love for us in these moments now? In Jesus' name, amen.